So how are you going to make it? I deliver a hard day's work for the money. I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. I follow the rules. Everybody's got their own hard times these days. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 81 this time, and that is Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I have chosen John Carpenter's They Live from 1988. By the way, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the film. Is that why it's being screened at various Alamo draft houses right now, I assume? I'm guessing that's the case, but whatever the reason, I'm delighted to see it in the theater anytime I can. It was directed and written by John Carpenter. He wrote it under a pseudonym. An H.P. Lovecraft-inspired pseudonym. That's Frank Armitage, by the way. And it stars Roddy Piper, Keith David, Meg Foster, Peter Jason, and Raymond Saint-Jacques. A drifter discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to wake up to the fact that aliens have taken over the Earth. Let's get right to it, and we begin with the Universal logo from that time... It seems really appropriate for this that this is the globe that we push into from space. And not just thematically appropriate for the movie, but for all the things that the movie draws on. The history of monster movies, the history of sci-fi films. So many of which classic examples were turned out by Universal Studios. I assume this movie had you right away because we start with a train. Yes, it's trains, it's John Carpenter's name in the title, it's a nameless drifter, it's a veritable gold mine. The passing of this first train that we see reveals our man with no name of a sort, and that's played by Roddy Piper. And I have to admit that this was the first time in all the times that I've watched it that I realized Roddy Piper's character has a name. For all these years, I thought he was just nameless. I'm with you, and I think really the first step for me was realizing that no one ever referred to him. I'm not even sure that occurred to me. And then when it finally did, after the first couple of times I had seen this, I had that same insight that you did. Well, he falls firmly in that Clint Eastwood Yojimbo mold, and he may have a name in this case. That name is Nada. Literally nothing. And that's not the only thing that evokes the urban western here. The trains, the dilapidated landscape, Carpenter's hybrid of blues and western score. I think of it as that classic Carpenter synth plus harmonica. I've seen it referred to as a twangy, poor loser score. No one talks about Roddy Piper like that in this house. What is it about this man-with-no-name archetype that appeals to you so much, if it does? I don't think that it does specifically. Jacques, I have evidence to the contrary. (laughs) All right, hit me with it. One of your favorite things as a kid, the Incredible Hulk television show with Bill Bixby was very much a Western in this same sense. A drifter going town to town helping strangers, then anonymously on his way to the next place. So what do you have to say about that now, Hotshot? Okay, you've got a good point there. And I guess if I do think back to our very first episode, I was so intrigued by the main heroine and Rebecca having no name. 
and her coming into town, cleaning up the joint, and then moving on to Dodge City with your gratitude as her only reward? Sort of, but along (laughs) the same vein, I'm thinking of a specific example here, and that example is Shane. I still haven't seen it. And that's because as a kid, when I learned what the concept was, that he leaves at the end, it was so confusing to me. Probably because I'm pretty literal-minded, as you know, it was really hard for me to grasp the idea that you would come to a place, clean it up, make a good life for yourself, and then turn your back on it. I have as my second piece of evidence the stellar film Baby Boom, which we watched the (laughs) other day. That, to me, is a prime example of you stay where you've made this great life. It makes sense that she stays in Vermont, that she doesn't go back to New York. So are you drawing some heretofore unseen parallel between consultants or advertising executives and rootless samurai, for instance? She is called the Tiger Lady. Come on. <laughs> That's true. So then going back to your point about the Incredible Hulk, which was my favorite when I was a kid, I think I'm most drawn to the cleaning up the crime, almost that conservative sense that you mentioned in the horror genre of setting things to right, but not really the no-name part and definitely not the leaving part. It may be similar for me. We all come to these tropes at different points in our lives. And for me, the blueprint for this was the Lone Ranger television show with Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels. We're responding at that age to storytelling traditions that we can't even articulate, probably. But there was something universal about the ideas and that planted a seed for things that we would enjoy later and help shape our worldview. For you, I guess it's the cleanup part, but not necessarily the leaving, like you say. For me, it was those ideas of loneliness, not loneliness, but loneliness. That was an incredibly appealing idea. Independence, justice, I definitely am on the side of that as well. But specifically being beholden to no one, especially those fat cat cattle barons and railroad tycoons. So I can see how the Hulk experience would have primed you for this film. And then those experiences combined with They Live get you ready for another of your favorites, The Matrix, for example. Which is one of our favorite things about this show, tracking down those connections, seeing how these chains develop in our personal canons. I love seeing how these favorites are developed. I love you bringing up these ideas and thinking about those traditions. I'm sure I'm not alone. I thought of the Grapes of Wrath, especially when they get to the homeless camp, and the spirit of how people operate there. Going back to the Lone Ranger and the Hulk for a second, I'm assuming that you and I, even though I'm an only child, so I spent a lot of time alone, and you of course have siblings, that we were probably both the kinds of kids who dreamed of putting our hobo packs together and hitting the road. Uh, not dreamed of, did. Ran away more times (laughs) than I could count when I was six or seven years old. Lord. Took peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, maybe made it two blocks, maybe lasted 15 minutes. And when Nada first appears, he's literally got the bedroll in the pack. So we know he's a wanderer. He's still literally on the wrong side of the tracks. We see what I take to be the outskirts of L.A. We see the graffiti. We see true pictures of homelessness and transience. And it spells to me, no hope. And that's underscored when he goes to this job center. Well, John Carpenter draws on a number of genres for this. I already mentioned the Western. You can't talk about Carpenter without talking about the influence that Howard Hawks, John Ford, and Sergio Leone had on him. But other things find their way in, too. The paranoia of atomic-era science fiction is obviously here. And this hybrid also contains elements of what you are talking about, this dystopian landscape, which I think makes this film ripe for rediscovery for the current generation. 
One thing I learned from all that time in the bookstore, sparkly vampires are out, dystopia is in. You walk into any young adult section anywhere and you'll see that it is big business these days. So I wonder how Hunger Games fans, for instance, would view this. Granted, being hunted for sport is probably not an apples-to-apples comparison to looking for assistance in finding a job. What would you rather have? Would you rather be shot at with arrows, or would you rather have an uninterested bureaucrat looking at her watch while you're telling your sob story? To me, that scene, coupled with that PA message about food stamps being suspended due to a computer error, are straight out of 1984. And it does seem fitting at any point for there to be a little 3x5 note card up there saying, Wanted, fit male, must have lots of meat on him, available for a hunt this Sunday. It's really intriguing to me that you mentioned that new trend in YA fiction. I had no idea that it was going that heavily dystopian. I don't remember it being the case when I was a kid. It seemed to be all computer hacking and kid adventure. Well, what would John Carpenter tell us? It's just a further indictment of the times we live in. I remember one or two things like that from when I was that age. But even the stuff now that's primarily something else, wizards, stuff that's based on mythology, it's not just straight stories like that. There's a touch of the apocalyptic to all of it. If we don't win this battle, it's the end of the world. I think back to those science projects and reports I did in school. First, realizing the concept of recycling and begging my parents, to the point of tears, for us to get started with it. I think I still felt like I could do something, and I guess now it feels like there is no hope. We're so beyond that point. So take a lesson, young listeners. Just give up now. There is no hope. Your friend's the Magic Lantern. XOXOXO. Well, let me bring up another bright spot in that landscape of 1988. I realized as Nada is telling the worker in this employment office that he's from Colorado, but the banks have dried up, causing him to have to move on. That maybe some of our younger audience members might not get the context of that. I'm sure you did. You talking about savings and loan crisis? Is that what you mean? I am. I remember that vividly, though at least to my family, it didn't have a significant repercussion But to give you some context, in the 80s and 90s, a large number of savings and loan associations failed. It was something like over a thousand out of the roughly 3,000 across the country. If you think back to It's a Wonderful Life, it's sort of that idea. So interest rates were climbing and these SNLs were trying to borrow against the deposits that they had on hand. But when they couldn't keep pace with those rates, they became insolvent, which means people lost their money. And I'm thinking about all of those things as I'm watching Roddy Piper play that scene so beautifully, trying to be friendly and sympathetic in the face of anger, in the face of someone who does not want him there. So there's no hope to be found there, no chance to be found there. He's got to keep moving on. He next sees a street preacher. That's Raymond Saint-Jacques talking about how the human spirit has become corrupted. It's all about greed and that we are slaves, essentially. And it's in this world that we notice that the cops are watching him, while all around us we just see TVs everywhere running the same images over and over and over again. We do have to remember, at its heart it is a B-movie. It's not the most subtle film that was ever made. So what the street preacher is saying, we eventually come to know, is the truth. The hypnotic images of these TVs, we see the effect that they have on people. 
at one point we even see Roddy Piper watching the television through someone's window and there's a woman on screen waxing rhapsodic about the desire to be a celebrity, to be famous, and how that affords you a particular type of immortality. And it's such a ridiculous, short-sighted goal. When is the last time, for instance, you heard someone talking about Warner Baxter or Anita Page in reverent tones? Why, just the other day. <laughs> Only in this house. Yeah. But it is a really eerie thing to watch. Because it's played at such a high effect, it seems like it's on 11 but God, it seems really real now. If you think your name is somehow going to live forever, chances are not in your favor. Chances are you're a complete idiot. It's not going to happen. And Carpenter and everyone before him that made similar observations to this, they all look like sages now, as it also obviously points to the reality television-dominated culture that is so prevalent now among the mainstream. I seem to recall, correct me if I'm wrong, you telling me a story about just talking with someone. And I think they said something along the lines of, everybody wants to be famous, don't they? Yeah, that was an argument on a Facebook thread somewhere in the dear dim past that I was having with someone. I've had similar arguments with people all along the way. When I was a freshman in college, I specifically remember being in the lounge on the floor of our dorm and someone trying to make the argument to me that Millie Vanilli was somehow culturally exceptional, worthy of adoration or emulation because, quote, they're getting paid, aren't they? Blame it on the rain, am I right? <laughs> that does seem like kind of a dorm lounge sort of conversation. Those sorts of aspirations I really can't relate to anymore, and I don't think at this level the people in the film can either. But it's a level of escapism that still seems to attract them, and I think we begin to understand why. We get our first glimpse of that homeless camp, but then we're still down to the business of getting a job. Well, Roddy gets a job at a construction site demonstrating a couple of things. One, that the character knows how to play the game. The character clearly knows how to turn on this charm when he has to. And even more pointedly, knows specifically what he needs to say. And on a performance level, Roddy Piper is great at this. The guy is very charismatic. So you could see how this regular guy, hard worker, straight shooter, gleam in his eye. Of course, you'd want to take this guy on. I'm going to give my patented Erica Long recommendation, which is to watch this first section with the sound off and just concentrate on his face. He and John Carpenter have talked about how they work together and that he's a natural. I mean, he'd been a performer for such a long time, but I think John Carpenter really brought out his subtleties and it's a pleasure to watch. And then this experience is about to get a lot more <laughs> pleasurable and that's because Keith David is in this movie. Keith David, the eternally solid dude to the rescue. When is he going to get his own starring vehicle? I hope before Carpenter retires for good that he takes a page from his own Masters of Horror entry cigarette burns and directs David in a film so horrifying that it literally makes everyone who watches it go homicidally insane. I'm going to take a big right turn from that and say <laughs> that I really want to see him dance. He's a trained dancer. Give me some of that. Well, he steps in to offer him help, shelter. Whatever guidance he can, he sees that this is the new kid in town, basically. And, just like you would hope Keith David would, he offers to take him under his wing. It's the first person that we see that treats him like a fellow human being, that isn't questioning his motives or treating him like garbage. Well, he takes him to this camp, this Hooverville, essentially, where they all live. And in this dystopian nightmare, we have all these scenes of domesticity playing out. Kids playing hopscotch, a mother reading to her child dinner being prepared, 
it put me in mind of the forgotten man, quote unquote, in the FDR sense of that phrase. The forgotten man as referred to in My Man Godfrey, people struggling to make a normal life out of abnormal, less than ideal economic circumstances. The major difference being that in Godfrey or something like Sullivan's Travels, there was much more of a sense of we're all in this together, rich or poor, don't forget it. When we have the introduction of Peter Jason as Gilbert, that's where it definitely reminded me of the camp in The Grapes of Wrath. That sense of we are in this together, that we are human beings, not poor trash. It's the idea of use the tools that you have, literally, to make this entire place work for all of us. It was also really interesting for me to see here that we see races of all kinds, that we see people of multi-generations, mothers, fathers, children, couples together, the elderly. And specifically for me as a young person when I first saw this, I guess I had this worldview of sci-fi specifically that it was very white seemingly. So it seemed to really broaden my perspective of what this kind of film could be. And it also seemed just more representative of the world. So it only took us 50 years to figure out and present on screen that homeless populations were not just all white people. That included studio moguls in disguise or disgraced bankers. And the message is no longer that we are in this together with the rich. It's now us against them. Definitely. Because as in 30 years later with something like the Overnighters, these are still the bottom of the barrel, according to the rest of society. It's very much class warfare. And it seems like those TVs that we see dotted around, that that's the opiate that's been given to distract you from what's going on. And some people are definitely content to zone out in front of it. Well, Carpenter is not pulling his punches with any of this. The sedated audience or the people in charge. He has gone right past this idea that the playing field is going to level if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. A sentiment that you actually hear coming out of Piper's mouth shortly. Straight into armed insurgency and open revolt. For a movie that so many people I think fondly remember as fun, it is a very bleak outlook. I'm one of those who has this vision of the film as being this fun thrill ride. And it's not. At least it's not to me anymore. I'm fascinated by those two viewpoints that we have. Nada talking about how he follows the rules, and that should eventually be its own reward. And then Keith David playing Frank Armitage here, who is voicing violence, who has been pushed to that point. He has a family, a wife and two kids in Detroit. He's been gone from them for six months. And that was, again, based on a financial situation. Steel companies closed down. And he voices things that people still feel now, which is that CEOs took the tax breaks, and maybe we should go after their cars instead, and their lives maybe with a sledgehammer. This is where I was asking a question that I think you were asking yourself a little earlier. How long has Roddy Piper been in this situation? He's clearly savvy enough to know the ins and outs of things, but he admonishes David to have more patience with life. And he gives that spiel about how America, if you follow the rules, opportunities will come. In the current cultural climate, does this come off to you as a combination of naivete and a little bit of white privilege, maybe? It seems real easy for him to say. I think that's a great point. I think there's regionalism, which also is sometimes racially driven in there as well. Frank has been believably pushed to that point. Nada, on the other hand, doesn't talk about his family, though we do get glimpses of his wedding ring. 
So it seems like it's got to be a bit easier to get from Colorado to California than from Michigan to California. And this could just be me as well, but I think about the fact that he still has his tools. So at some point, he hasn't had to get to the place where he has to sell everything just to survive one more day. And I think about your white privilege comment. If Frank had invoked that idea of, well, let me speak to the union boss, it seems like he would have been kicked out. Yeah, now that you say that, it puts me in mind of something like blue collar, where these divisions are very clearly in place. Again, it's painted in broad strokes. It's a B film. It's not built to withstand that sort of scrutiny. This thing you say about going from Colorado to California, or even further from Michigan to California, it's something that I innately respond to, this idea of going where the work is. You're talking about my people, Okies. I have family in Red Bluff, California to this day because of that Dust Bowl migration. One of my favorite aunts, Aunt Dorothy, she went through that when she was young, and she was the best. Have I ever told you about her before? I don't think so. She was pretty freewheeling, very entertaining, but you could tell that she never forgot about those days because of little things. Some people that lived through the Depression would save string, buttons, anything that they thought might be useful in a pinch. Her thing was that when we went out to eat, she would always bring the biggest purse she had. Oh my goodness, I can see where this is going. And God help the restaurant if they serve free bread or rolls before this meal. She would load that bag up. And the other adults that were there, I'm sure, were probably mortified, but I thought it was hilarious. She would always give me this little wink as she slid even more food into that bag. And maybe a glass. And maybe some silverware. In retrospect, maybe she was just a kleptomaniac. <laughs> a friend of my Aunt Gail's does the same thing, and it is all tableware and flatware. Did she live through the Dust Bowl as well? Nope. <laughs> That reminds me, my dad was telling me stories about my grandpa when he was a kid, my dad that is, my grandpa would have to travel to find any available work. And that would take him to places like Ohio from Virginia and beyond. Because it didn't matter where he had to go, he had to find something to take care of his family. And that brings me all the way up until today when you have a film like The Overnighters and you see how those migrants are treated as well. It's the same situation. And back in our homeless camp, they're making this world unto themselves a bit of a safe haven for the moments that they have it. While a group of them are gathered around the camp's sole television, a hacker cuts in and we see a pirate television broadcast that seems suspiciously like a more specific version of the street preacher spiel that he was giving earlier in the film. And it just adds another layer to the bleakness, the blunt truth of what this guy is saying is nearly unbearable, especially when you consider the conditions that he describes versus where we find ourselves today, selfish and sedated all along the way. Just as one example, not specifically taking race or advanced age into account, which only makes the gaps I am about to mention significantly worse, between 1963 and 2016, families near the bottom of the wealth distribution, the bottom 10%, went from having no wealth on average to being in debt by $1,000. Families near the top, the top 10%, saw their wealth increase fivefold, and the wealth of those in the top 1% grew sevenfold. So some of the things that the hacker is talking about in his propaganda are now exactly as he described, or even worse. If we thought these conditions were unbearable in 1988, how are we bearing them now in 2018? It kind of seems like this is the woke film for now. He's talking about the implications and wealth and corporate greed to the environment. And the people watching 
are not really buying it. And with some statements that he makes are actively annoyed by it. It's just an interruption. And so even in my relatively privileged position here, I feel like I can't bear it. I'm going to bring up my recent Facebook beef, if that's okay. Okay, what did you do now? I got into an argument with a total stranger that went absolutely nowhere because the guy's a jerk. (laughs) I say that with, you know, having no opinion about it, obviously. So when this person in the movement talks about these people keeping us asleep, selfish, and sedated, it made me think about what this guy was saying. A friend of mine posted something along the lines of, we need to keep paying attention. And one of the daily posts that we see now about the latest, most terrible thing happening. And this guy was all smiley faces, emoticons, about how everything's going to be fine, and why don't we just talk about music? I responded back to my friend only, and this guy decided to engage with me about how talking about my opinions was like talking about my bowel movements. Nobody cares, and I'm probably losing friends because of it. This incensed me, obviously. It went on and on and on until I just stopped. And so now watching this film, I'm assuming that that guy is collaborating with the alien races who have taken over our our world. And do you want to say who that was? I found out later that he is a member of a pretty hugely famous country band, and I'm not going to mention, but it rhymes with Schmaschwolf Blatz. I'm going to tell him, you were fighting with the drummer from Rascal Flats. Yeah, screw you, pal. (laughs) Okay, this dirtbag is probably a millionaire and sits atop a throne from which he could talk to his audience about things that are important. And instead, he wants us all to smile and shut up. So screw you, pal. This is pretty exciting. Our first genuine celebrity beef. We should take to Twitter with this right away. Anyway, he could probably crush me like a bug, but I'm sure he's never going to listen to this show. But it's at that moment that we see the preacher being led away by Gilbert into this church that's across the street from the camp. It's a pretty shifty looking church, by the way. (laughs) Those green lights coming out of it. Yeah, what's going on in this church? Chemicals, sunglasses... Recordings of a choir covering a secret meeting. Roddy goes to investigate and is surprised by the street preacher there. We see that message on the wall. They live, we sleep. There's all kinds of talk on the streets and everybody is spouting these conspiracy theories. They all sound nuts, or do they? Here, for me, is where the true horror is found. If you talk long enough to anyone you know, you will come to find out They believe in something absolutely bananas. For example, mermaids or that the Holocaust didn't happen, something like that. It may take a while to find, but believe me, it is there. So we work awfully hard to not reach that place with people we know. To have to face up to that madness. And when it comes into focus, when we're ambushed by it, that's the scary part. And the other frightening part, We are forced to confront this idea, if presented, with the irrefutable proof, and I'm not saying crackpot theories, but provable, accessible facts. Do you join in an unwinnable fight? That wealth inequality statistic I cited, for example, how much has to accumulate? How much has to be true to tip the balance for you? To move you first from complacency to, say, activism, and then finally from activism to open revolt. Again, this is supposed to be a fun thrill ride, but I feel like Carpenter is holding our feet to the fire. He's making us make a choice. 
a little ironic that he's using someone with as much Carnival Barker in him as Roddy Piper, but still making us look directly at this. I wonder, and I'm speaking only for me, for no one else, how selfish that answer goes. Is it how much would be taken from me or mine before I actually do something? But maybe also I watch too many movies that were of that unnamed hero righting the wrongs because their entire family had been destroyed, for example. I love that you mentioned starting to really feel the horror here as well. To give some more context as well, in this period, I'm sure you remember this too, the Reagan administration had gutted the budgets for mental institutions, for state-run institutions. And so when we were kids, a significant part of this homeless population, people thrown into the streets, were truly mentally ill. So you might actually come upon people spouting theories like this. Is he telling us that we're right to be paranoid? Or that we're right to believe the paranoid? Or we should be in fear of them? I love the fact that Keith David, his character, is actually our avatar for dealing with this problem. For looking inside ourselves for that answer. He doesn't want to rock the boat. But now Roddy is curious. How much of a reversal is that of their previously stated positions? From things that they've said prior to this point, Keith David's anger at the steel company selling them out, and Piper's bit about believing in the American way, it seems like they have switched positions entirely. Is the difference something that you just mentioned when it comes down to brass tacks? David has a family and Piper doesn't, that we know of at least? The man with no name has nothing to lose? I think back again to what Frank says, and he couches it in terms of, maybe we should do this. And if one more of these guys takes one more tax break, I'm going to do this. So voicing this anger that so many of us feel, and yet in a place where we're talking to a like-minded person, spouting off, venting, but yet wanting to hold on to the last little bit of what we have, and then that means that those people in power have that huge bargaining chip still, that bait, that hold over us. Well, it's not long before everyone's hand is forced. There's a raid on the church, a bunch of faceless police drones level this Hooverville. They're rounding everyone up, beating the hacker and the preacher. And in the aftermath, people are trying to salvage whatever tiny little fragments are left of their lives. I just want to stop you there because this, the moment when they level this Hooverville is when it became deadly serious for me. And I actually wrote that down. I remember this is fun, but this is deadly serious because we see the time taken to hurt these people, to destroy everything that they have, including for some of them, their lives. At no point does John Carpenter step away from this and we're on the side of this Hooverville. So there's no deep state. This is just the state leveling total destruction on people who have not earned it. Well, what Roddy manages to salvage from all this mess is a box of the sunglasses from the church. And he tries them on for the very first time and his eyes are literally opened. And it's a black and white world of subliminal messages everywhere. Obey, marry and reproduce, no independent thought, consume, watch TV, stay asleep. He sees his first well-heeled alien. He accosts a Martha Stewart alien in the market. I think it's really interesting, too, that the real world, quote-unquote, is gray. It's in black and white, which to me makes that obvious connection to these Atomic Age films that you had mentioned, and that we're constantly being told to consume in some way or another, so that every available surface, every space has some sort of message like this. 
And then to the aliens themselves, this was a big reveal for me. It's like we see the flesh being stripped away to the horror beneath. And John Carpenter specifically did not want the aliens to look like high-tech creatures. He wanted them to look like walking, rotting corpses. Again, not the most subtle thing, but to resemble corruptions of human beings. Speaking of not the most subtle things, there's a device used here that becomes, appropriately enough, clumsy with overuse. He's all the time backing up, stumbling over stuff. It's how he found the secret room in the church. He does it again here in the store. I feel like this is where he actually crosses over into full rowdy Roddy Piper territory. The physical comedy, they're onto him because he can't keep his mouth shut. This is the Roddy Piper that wrestling fans came for. I find that stumbling to be really interesting, though. It's this total reversal of this typical 80s action hero. He makes mistakes. He's not indestructible. So I actually liked that element of it. I get it once, but not twice. That makes sense. I definitely, though, am still as engaged by Roddy Piper as I was when I was a kid. Is that how you knew him first? Did you know him as a wrestler primarily instead of an action hero? Oh my god, 150,000%. I could spot that kilt from a mile away. I wasn't a huge wrestling fan, but honestly when I was a kid, it seemed just pervasive. It seemed to be always on some channel at least. Maybe that was a regional Virginia thing? Maybe it was the 80s? I'm not sure. I know you're really the big wrestling fan in the family. Before you tell me more about that, though, I have to say my cousin Betty did take everyone to see Lord of the Rings because she thought it was a wrestling movie. (laughs) Perfect. No, wrestling was big business then. I guess it is now, too, but it's just not the same. It does seem like it was more pervasive. Let me take you back to the times of the territories. My first exposure to Roddy Piper was when he was in Georgia in the very early 80s, 80, 81, 82... Because he started out really young. Oh yeah, he'd been wrestling for years before he'd even gotten to the Georgia or Mid-Atlantic territories. In fact, I think his first few matches with the WWF, which is what it was called then instead of the WWE, were in the late 70s instead. He was just a jobber then. He was not by any means even a mid-card talent at that point. That took a while. But it was this time in the early 80s when he was in Georgia that he started to pick up steam. This was his first big heel-face turn. And then within the next two years, he'd moved on to the WWF and was doing Piper's Pit, and there was no looking back after that. Cracking Jimmy Snooker on the head with that coconut, being in a feud with Hulk Hogan, Cindy Lauper, and Mr. T. <laughs> Those were the days. He truly was one of the greatest talkers in the history of wrestling, hands down. He was smart, he was funny, and most importantly, he could play the dumb guy. Through to the very end of his career, he never put himself above the audience, except when that was specifically what was needed for the bit. He knew that his primary audience, any audience for that matter, is often intimidated by someone they perceive as smarter than them, so he knew exactly right where to pitch the jokes, the insults, and the action. He was a born entertainer, and Carpenter's instincts to cast him for this were on the money. And once we cross this rowdy line in the film, there's no looking back. He has a fight with the alien cops next, kills them, takes their weapons... And he goes into a bank and delivers the now iconic line about chewing bubblegum and kicking ass. And I know I'm in the minority, but all of this to me is silly. I know I'm supposed to love it and think it's hilarious. And if I don't, I'm just a big killjoy. I guess I will just have to accept that mantle. 
I mentioned in our episode about The Thing that there's always a place or two in his films where Carpenter is pandering to the easily entertained. In The Thing, it's when McCready pours his drink into the chess computer. And in They Live, it's right here. And if you take umbrage at what I'm saying, considering the construction of the scene. He apparently found this line in a book of one-liners he used to carry around for cutting wrestling promos. John Carpenter essentially calculatedly said, we need a catchphrase right here. They stuck their fingers at random into the equivalent of an Al Jaffe snappy comebacks book and cinema history is made? Question mark? Are you finished, sir? Not quite. I'll say it every time we watch Carpenter and these moments happen. John Carpenter knows that he's smarter than what he's putting on screen in that moment, and that's disappointing to me. By the way, funnily enough, this is our third John Carpenter, completely by accident. But back to your ridiculous statement, I take Dolores umbrage at it, sir. (laughs) I completely get what you're saying. The one-liners totally lose me because I think that he's built something up to this point, and then I think squanders it. However... I still love the bubblegum line, and I think I always will. But I do wish they had just left it there, because I think it undercuts the stakes to a certain degree. He's now gone from zero to 60. He's actually killed people, which I wouldn't have imagined that of him when we first met him. And so now he just has to keep moving forward and stay hidden. And as he stumbles into the bank, it's not a calculated move, he stumbles into a parking garage and into a kidnapping. This time of Meg Foster, who's playing Holly here. And now I'm going to pause while you get into Cole Rolaine's beef number 500,000 on Meg Foster. Take it away. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, add to that equation Meg Foster and her creepy eyes. I love Meg Foster. I loved those eyes. I wanted to see her and everything. But she's also in one of my favorite Murder, She Wrote episodes, by the way. Let me guess. She's the dirty murderer. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Well, he eludes the cops with her help. But red flags should be going off. Class lines are so clearly drawn throughout this thing. Humans are working class on down. Aliens are the wealthy and the privileged. Money and status are their hallmarks. So should her BMW not be a giveaway to sharp-eyed viewers? That's a tell. Anyone who's paying attention knows not to ever trust her from the jump, right? And also, she's in TV, so we've got that as a mark against her. And she refuses to look through those glasses. So either she won't be woken up, or she already knows something that he's just figured out. Well, my suspicions of her are verified because she throws him out of a window and he's back on the run again. And he goes back to the only place he knows, the job site. Keith David doesn't want to hear it. So Roddy goes to retrieve the sunglasses. Side note, from the most incompetent slash oblivious garbage truck drivers ever to walk the face of the earth. And finally, we arrive at the epic fight in the alley, one of the all-time great fight scenes in modern cinema. That's true. Can we hype it enough? It's great. It's so much fun to watch, and it's important as well. Why will no one just put these glasses on? It seems like such an easy thing to do. I think, again, that's a really interesting concept. When someone sounds crazy, you just want to get away from them. You mentioned before that distance that we try to keep so that we don't learn that important thing about this person that would make us not like them anymore. And he's trying to shout it from the rooftops. We don't want to be woken up sometimes. So it's really important because this is not two enemies. This is people who like each other and don't want to hurt each other. Exactly. This fight is notable for me for a couple of reasons. And that's the first one. It's a fight between friends. 
it makes me appreciate the aspect that it's not a fight they want to have, it's a fight they have to have. Again, another element of where the horror lies. It's not just a jump scare, it's elemental. That feeling of being just one man against the world. The desperation for someone, anyone to believe you that pushes you to violence as a last resort. And the other thing, number two, nice suplex. The fight gets super dirty and they break out the wrestling moves. You gotta tell me what those are, because again, I didn't watch enough of it to really be able to spot those things. Remind me later and we'll put some pillows down on the floor and I'll show you what they all are. Why don't you get someone who is a foot taller than me and weighs 100 <laughs> more pounds? Thank you. Well, I'm sorry, I don't know Keith David. I can't just call him up and have him come over. I regret that also on many levels. <laughs> well, after more than five minutes of brawling, Keith David finally sees the light. Okay, but tell me what a suplex is, though. The first instance of it, there's a belly-to-back suplex that gets your attention right away because it is not typical movie fight choreography. It's that move where one guy is standing behind the other, picks him up, they both fall, he drops him on his back. I gotcha. I think there's a pile driver in there. There's probably the Minnesota gate lift. I just made that one up. Oh, that sounded really real. We should do a little game like we used to do, where I make up wrestling moves and you tell me whether they're actually true or not. Deal. Okay, you ready? Yes. The people's elbow. Fake. True. Oh my gosh. The chocolate choo-choo. Fake. That's what I had for dinner. That was actually the name of a drink in a Kids in the Hall sketch. Oh. <laughs> the stink face. True? Absolutely true. Oh you my win. gosh. So you did pretty good. Two out of three is not bad there. Nothing could be as crazy as those fights that you showed me that took place on the scaffolding. What was it? They had sort of planks between 10-foot bars. I don't know. You're I talking crazy. about the legendary Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express scaffold matches, and they were well above 10 feet off the ground. In some cases, more like 24. Yeah, put up by no one who knew what they <laughs> no, were doing. Not at all. No insurance. Yeah, I believe what you are trying to say is the good old days. That's also why I like this fight so much. One, because Nada is trying to save Frank and his family. And two, and maybe most importantly, because it looks appropriately exhausting. The bruises that they come away with look actually real. And again, that departure from what we were used to seeing in the 80s and today. I actually wish I could have been on the set for that because according to what everyone says, Roddy Piper and Keith David had a blast filming this scene. It took three days and extensive choreography because the whole scene in total is about seven and a half minutes. But according to everyone who was there, everyone had a blast doing this. And it really does show on screen, I think. I want to see them rehearsing it at John Carpenter's office in the Valley on a couple of mattresses. I think that those would have been the best seats. Well, it's all over. Frank has seen the light. And just when I thought it was safe that we'd gotten past the one moment I had to be aware of, life's a bitch and she's back in heat. Why are they trying so goddamn hard to shoehorn these dumb catchphrases into this film? I don't get it either. But again, maybe that's age. Because what I focus on now is that, again, once Frank has seen the light, he says, what are we gonna do? We're in this together, and we have to do something about it. I also realized at this point that I can't think of movies like this I had growing up, which I would term doomed adventure. Was John Carpenter the only one making those things that people saw very many of? Because there are more than one of them in his catalog. Maybe I was just too young at that point. But at least for now, 
they're dead set on trying to make a difference. And you're right. From here on, it's we. Armed with the truth, they team up. Gilbert from the church turns up again, and I remember that when I saw this the first time, the paranoia had already grabbed me. How did Gilbert get away from the cops? He tells them about a meeting tonight. Is this a trap? Trust no one. How about you? Do you remember how his return affected you, or was it just when you saw Meg Foster again later? It was here, and it was a bit earlier as well, when we catch him in the church the first time. He seems so shifty, and also he just seems more prosperous. But I could be thinking of other characters that Peter Jason had played as well. It seemed like he was generally on the side of the corporation or the big guy. Well, they go to the meeting, and the resistance is organizing, upgrading to contact lenses from those conspicuous sunglasses... They have scored some alien tech, one of those wristwatch communication teleportation devices. We learn that most humans sell out right away, no surprise. We are the third world to these aliens. All of which leaves me with one question, perhaps the most important question of the film. How is anyone in this 80s style revolution going to know who's in charge if no one is wearing a Che Guevara style beret? Now that you say that, is that the tip-off that Meg Foster is bad because she's wearing shoulder pads? No. The tip-off that Meg Foster is bad is that she's bad. And she shows up. An even bigger killjoy than me arrives. Meg Foster's here to ruin the party for everybody. Okay, we're on totally different sides of this because I'm still a big Meg Foster fan. And I love that moment when she changes her voice and asks if he's okay because I was still believing her then. You are a total sap. I guess so. This is why you're not going to be in charge when the shit goes down. So I don't get to wear the beret? Because I look really good in berets. You can be the image that we put on posters. You can be the figurehead. Our fashion plate. At any rate, the police show up and start mowing down civilians left and right. Someone obviously ratted them out. Gee, I wonder who that was. And our heroes find themselves trapped in an alley. But fortunately, that watch they were given was apparently from the Deus Ex Machina line. So they miraculously make good their escape and drop into the alien complex. One thing I noted from the guards on duty, these aliens may be from an advanced race, but their guards sure talk like dumb humans. And so they're crashing the big party, and they take a moment to put their guns away. Sure, it's the guns that make them stick out. We find out the revolution has been quashed. Underlined by this pointed barb, the situation is normal again. These aliens are real dicks, just rubbing it in at their fancy party. They run into an old pal from their Hooverville who gives them the tour of the facility, not knowing that they are outsiders. Now that you've seen all the benefits, do you sell out? Have we not already? I love this touch. This feels like them stumbling into the oil baron's ball from Dallas, complete with this guy who, at the beginning, had been the one being so annoyed by this pirate TV signal. And he's just a cigar-chewing, every-guy-dope, who brings in what is my favorite touch for this whole thing, letting us see behind the scenes of what makes a collaborator. All of these phrases that he uses, like, they got their act together, meaning we don't need to understand how anything works, and that it's all just business but they're going to let us have a part of it. So it's not even as though everyone has the goods. It's the bait. It's the promise of what you can have if you just go along, step by step, until there's nothing else left. And so it's as if the aliens don't really matter. 
We already gave up. It's not even necessary. Our greed is the thing that takes over the world. So even if they weren't there, would we still do the same thing? I don't see them as much as interstellar oil barons as much as I think we're sitting around with a bunch of alien Winston Churchills who have just made that sick burn on us and now we're just haggling over the price, quote unquote. And another thing, how come these aliens give full access to this facility to any Yahoo that is basically still just a servant, a recruiter? He was homeless just days ago. He wasn't exactly connected, a mover and a shaker. I guess the assumption is that no one that's unauthorized could get in here and so therefore it's safe? I just assumed it's because it's already a foregone conclusion. They were all so stupid that once we're actually given this bait too, we'll just go along with it. So what do they ultimately have to fear? Nothing. And in terms of our greed and the selling out that we're doing, there's a moment here when things start to go sideways that the phrase, your own kind, gets tossed out. Which is a particularly vicious bit of dialogue if you read between the lines aimed at Keith David, that's even more freighted. It takes on the specter of Uncle Tom. And if you didn't get the idea before, surely you can't miss it now. The underclasses are perpetual slaves. It's all that they've ever been. Some obviously much more literally than others. But this idea of what's wrong with having it good for a change, especially at the expense of your brethren, is one that carries a very particular sting in our culture, certainly. But Roddy and Keith are not going out like that. They storm the television studio. They miraculously find Holly, who is an asshole and shoots Keith David in the head. Roddy kills her. Good. And in his final act, he takes down the transmitter. Well, actually, in his final, final act, he gives them the finger. Good old Rowdy Roddy. Do you have a problem also with that touch of the finger? Is that also one of those kind of dumb things to speak down to everybody? Or do you appreciate it in the moment? I'm ambivalent about it. It doesn't strike me as dumb as the other things, the intentional forcing of the catchphrases, because it is very much in the spirit of the film to be anti-authoritarian. And it seems to fit with the character in the moment. It doesn't feel shoehorned in at all. Is it smart? No. But it doesn't feel as obvious and ham-fisted as either the catchphrases or the very last scene of the film. One second before we get to that, because... What his action has done is to awaken all of us, whether we like it or not. Without this transmission, everyone can see the aliens for what they really are. And the very last thing we see is a naked lady on top of one of the creatures. Boing, the end. I will say, though, that the message that I do take away from that, regardless of that annoyingness... Is don't bang aliens. That plus, okay, now we know, what are we gonna do if anything. It's a valid question, and it's been a valid question as long as there have been people, basically. In this case, it was a shot at Reaganomics and that yuppie culture, but today, in some ways, things seem worse, more polarized, even. I think it's a mistake to fall back on that, though. It's easy to be swept up in the circumstances you find yourself in at the time, but I think anyone that ever takes the long view of history knows that these things are just constants. There's fluctuation, obviously, the only thing that truly changes significantly is the technology. But all of these cycles, the wealthy further enriching themselves by putting their boots on the necks of the poor, that's not news. Power consolidating itself to remain ensconced is not news. Best not to think about it too much, and you should definitely not put on those sunglasses. And even with that long view of history that you're talking about, I know you're not saying, so ultimately, everything's going to be okay. Because it's not, and it never was. 
No, by no means do I mean it's going to be okay. John Carpenter definitely doesn't mean it's going to be okay. And I tend to agree with him in most cases. All I mean in that context is don't let your ego fool you in those situations into thinking that this is the only thing that's happened ever. This is the only time this has ever taken place. This is the worst time to live in. Because that is seldom, if ever, really true. Well, have we covered everything about why you chose it? Why this film means as much to you as it does? What do you have left in the tank there? As I've said with a lot of our choices, I don't get tired of watching this. It now seems crazy to think that I ever did think of it as a slam-bang summer movie. That's ultimately why I picked it for now. I was thinking, oh, we haven't done much sci-fi. Sort of a summer blockbuster thrill ride would be fun. So instead, I'll just lie and say that I totally knew this was going to be so relevant and resonant now, which it absolutely is. I did mention how much I appreciate Roddy Piper's performance, the subtleties in the beginning. I love the way John Carpenter works as well at a character level. He's talked about how he doesn't tell us what people do, where they came from, because you don't need to know. He wanted Roddy Piper to build his own backstory and not tell him or anybody else what it was. So we have that elusive wedding ring and we have to figure out what that means and what his stakes are, what he's playing for. We have the incomparable Keith David, as I mentioned. I love the supporting actors, Peter Jason, Raymond Saint-Jacques. I wanted to give you the chance to go off the rails with your Meg Foster beef. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Does that mean we won't be doing He-Man Masters of the Universe or Lords of Salem anytime soon? Yeah, I'm going to do a hard no on both of those. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we have the chance to talk about something that is very much about not being asleep, because I'm really feeling that right now. Well, you know I like Carpenter for all sorts of reasons. I enjoy his methods, his aesthetic, how he embraces both the A and the B picture. It seems like he and I clearly enjoy a lot of the same films. But the thing I like most about They Live Carpenter is his obvious anger. This is not a movie you make unless you've been pushed to a certain point. You're pissed off about something and you have to respond. He seems like he was a thorny guy then and even more now, and especially at this point in his career, he does not suffer fools gladly or mince words. In the twilight of his career, I feel like he has become this man with nothing to lose. So I pay attention to what he's trying to tell me, and I don't think he has steered me wrong. Whether about the inherent evils of consumer culture, the hardiness and ingenuity of babysitter slaughterers, or the single-minded resolve of leprous ghosts. In short, John Carpenter is always right about everything, except in that one spot in every film he puts in for the lowest common denominator. The end. Thank you very much. Okay. So on that note, what's your recommendation? Your favorite episodes of The Alex Jones Show? <laughs> oh my gosh. Thankfully, I'm not a crazy freak. I was inspired by one of the clear antecedents for the fight, and also one of John Carpenter's main influences, and that is The Quiet Man from 1952, directed by John Ford, with John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, Ward Bond, Victor McLaughlin, and Mildred Natwick. A retired American boxer returns to the village of his birth in Ireland where he finds love, but also importantly, has to have a major fight to get there. I really like this film and always have. No patty fingers, by the way. And I do remember being really confused by Maureen O'Hara's responses. So I find it intriguing on different levels and it changes with time for me. Now when I think about it, 
it had to be really confusing to come from a world of men to then become intimate with one, which is an entirely different proposition. But it's the fight for the money that always throws me because I would keep it. And it is a pretty epic fight, but it involves enemies as opposed to this film, which is about friends. How about you? Well, I almost went with Hell Comes to Frogtown, and I'm a little disappointed that you didn't, because you stole a little bit of my thunder, I feel like. I'm so sorry, I still haven't seen that one, so I couldn't choose it. I ended up in a similar place that you did, but I think I took a much different path to get there. Wrestlers in entertainment are so commonplace now. There are 15 WWE-related titles out or coming out in 2018. So it's easy to forget these days that wrestlers were not always so prevalent on the big screen. There were a few that made their mark. Mike Mazurki, one of our favorites, did a ton of bit parts and character roles, mostly tough guys, appearing in over 100 films over seven decades, the most notable probably being Murder My Sweet or Nightmare Alley. You'll certainly recognize him if you see his face. There's Tor Johnson, who, quote, distinguished himself, let's call it, with his work with Ed Wood, among others. And then there's the one I want to talk about today, one that you already mentioned, the only former wrestler that I'm aware of to ever win a Best Actor Oscar, Victor McLaughlin. Are you forgetting Dwayne The Rock Johnson for San Andreas? <laughs> I don't think there was an Oscar anywhere near that production. Agree to disagree. McLaughlin won that Oscar for the film that I want to recommend today, The Informer from 1935, also directed by John Ford. It stars McLaughlin, Heather Angel, and Lantern favorite Una O'Connor. It's about a former IRA soldier who informs on his friend to collect the bounty that will enable him to leave Ireland for the U.S. He falls under suspicion of being a rat, and then things begin to unravel. It's definitely early Ford and is less taciturn than his later films, but McLaughlin and his broadness and exaggerated physicality is really good for this period of Ford's output, I think, and for this film in particular. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. It's one of the most highly regarded dramas of the 1930s. So if you like John Ford, watch your movie and then go a little farther back in the catalog and check out The Informer. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Quiet Man and The Informer. And that brings us to the end of episode 81. First and foremost, before we do anything else, I wanted to say a special greetings in Tokyo and... Thank you to our friend Daisuke Beppu for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. We really appreciate it. If you would like to check out the Patreon and see what things we have on offer over there, you can find that at patreon.com slash magiclantern. Starting at $5 a month, you can get bonus episodes every other Monday, so you never have to go a week without having new Magic Lantern in your life. We just talked about our very favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes. And I'm thinking about going head-to-head -head with you about the greatest disaster film of all time. I think obviously you tipped your hand already and you'll be picking San Andreas. Dang it. Tune in, though. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon, Andy Wolverton, Matt Gasteyer, Tim Lego, David Lawrence, Mike Scharf, Drew Tavendale, and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, our friends Tim and Leon over at the podcast Yao Gaday, and I wanted to also say an extra special thanks to Hunter Wolf, who left us a really nice five-star rating and review this week. 
Hunter and his friends do a podcast called Overexposed that is also similar to us, a casual chat about the cinema they love. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about anywhere you find podcasts, we're there. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 